Please be seated. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. I truly understand that God shows no partiality. Thus, says Peter as he begins his fifth and final sermon recorded in the book of Acts. God had declared to him that he was to visit the house of Cornelius, a centurion and a Gentile, and for a Jew that act was forbidden. But he had said to Cornelius that God had shown him that he was to call no one profane or unclean. He began his address to those who had gathered in Cornelius' house to hear him, emphasizing that God shows no partiality. He went on to outline his core good news about Jesus. They put him to death, but God raised him on the third day, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Something about Jesus' resurrection brings into being a new social order, one in which there are no insiders or outsiders, no distinction of value between Jew and Gentile, no creation of others by the powers that be, such others being ripe to serve as scapegoats for the anxieties of society. For those in Christ, the vilification of any group is anathema. The vilification of refugees, Muslims, immigrants, Wall Street bankers, the police, Israelis, Palestinians, Hutu, Tutsi, Sunni, Shiite, or any other group of people that we might be tempted to despise is, for Christians, pure anathema. God shows no partiality. More than that, the death and resurrection of Jesus unveils our seemingly fundamental mechanism for dealing with that societal anxiety, whether brought on by crime or scarcity or grievance or just fear, namely our tendency to triangulate some third party, create a scapegoat, and seek to put things right by doing violence. It works like this. Our Holy Week preacher from some years ago, James Allison, told a parable about how this works. It's subtle. We often don't know we're in the middle of it until after the fact. But he talked about two teenagers on a soccer team who were shopping one day, and they saw a leather jacket that they both liked. And one of them really wanted it, and he was determined to buy it, so he went home to get his money. But it was the only jacket of that size that was left, and it fit both of them. And his friend decided, actually, he really wanted it too, and he already had his money on him, so he went and bought it while his other friend was going to get the money. As you can imagine, this created a certain amount of anxiety and stress in their relationship. Not hard to figure that one out. But they were still on the same soccer team. And they still wanted to be friends, even though there was a sort of brokenness. But rather than discussing it, they began to keep playing soccer on the same team, and the team started doing badly. They started doing badly, at least in part, because they weren't playing well together, literally or metaphorically. And yet, at the same time as that began to happen, a Mexican boy had come onto the squad. And these boys started saying that maybe it was because he came onto the squad that they weren't playing well. And they began a whispering, a wondering. And that whispering and that wondering became belief. And it became belief so strong that the Mexican boy was excluded from the team. We do violence 
they did began to play better together once they had evicted a common enemy. It doesn't take a huge act of imagination to recognize this mechanism of managing anxiety in relationships by creating and doing violence to those whom we turn into scapegoats. It doesn't take a huge act of imagination to hear this being brought into play in some of our political discourse in this campaign season. Of course we have real enemies and those who wish us harm. But using them to create a kind of ugly groupthink, a kind of airsats togetherness for the purpose of gaining votes, is the same mechanism, maybe with different consequence, but the same mechanism that put Jesus to death. They put him to death, but God raised him on the third day. The Roman and Jewish authorities colluded and conspired to put Jesus to death because he was disturbing the fragile equilibrium that they saw as peace. But God raised him, and things could never be the same after that. The mighty act of God that we celebrate this day is inseparable from the integrity with which Jesus lived his life and faced his death. The mighty wonder of resurrection is more, however, than vindication for a job well done, more than vindication for life well lived, although it is that. It is also the beginning of something new, something beyond our imagining, except that as we believe, so we begin to see glimpses of a new possibility, one in which we do not create victims, one in which we do not need to blame them for their misfortune, a new possibility in which we manage our anxieties by recognizing them and addressing them directly with each other, one in which we show no partiality and refuse to value one life more than another. Some of you who watch House of Cards on Netflix, and even those of you who don't will recognize why Christians must find a decision to force a doctor to allow the President of the United States to jump the line of those awaiting a liver transplant is profoundly unethical, unchristian. The new possibility looks like this. The new possibility looks like a Christian befriending a refugee across all kinds of barriers and boundaries. The new possibility looks like a corporation or a church addressing gender bias. The new possibility looks like like anyone learning about Islam from befriending Muslims more than from books. The new possibility is like a seed growing in the midst of the old ways, visible like the risen Jesus, only to those with eyes who have eyes to see. It is a thing of profound beauty, a testament to grace and life and love. The crucifixion and the manner with which Jesus went to his death show up our actions for what they are. The resurrection also inaugurates a new humanity, a new creation, a new possibility for all humankind, a new possibility for every one of us, founded on the reality of forgiveness, undeserved, unmerited grace to begin anew, and for each of us to find ourselves raised to that new life of grace in which we live toward justice and toward peace for all whom God hath made. And so Peter, in Cornelius' house, concludes his sermon. All the prophets testify about Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 
Perhaps some of you, some of us, like the crowd gathered at Cornelius' house, are yearning for a new possibility in the midst of all the horrors we see around us. Perhaps you can imagine yourself or begin to imagine yourself as part of this Jesus movement that talks about the well-being of all people rather than some over against others. A movement that recognizes that the way of real life is found in love and service and generosity and the like. And if that sounds like you, then I invite you to come forward to communion this day, even and perhaps especially if it has been a while since you have done that. And as you reach out your hands, say yes. Yes to Jesus. Yes to life. Yes to the community of disciples that serve as witnesses to all that Jesus did and to all that God has done in him. Say yes to hope. And then tell someone that you have glimpsed a new possibility and begun anew to follow Jesus. And for those of us who are already on the way, who know the story, we are reminded once again in this feast not to seek the living among the dead, and that God shows no partiality. So let us ever bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia.